Let's stand together, and we're going to read the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're going to sort of cover it in a different fashion, um, because it is a, it's a different type of chapter, and not a lot of expository teaching out of this, but maybe some broad general principles. Not maybe, yes, there's always something that we can glean, even if it's just a list of names and who they were and where they built. So we're going to read the first five verses. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it. Now, if you've got an old King James, it says that they sanctified it. And that's a more powerful word than consecrate, and it's the Hebrew word kodesh, And it's in a form in the original language, which means to make something separate. And so they set it apart. They sanctified it. So this is the very beginning of their building. And the priesthood is involved here. The high priest and his brethren. And at the beginning of the building, they consecrated it. And they hung the doors. They built it as far as the tower of the... Hundred, and they consecrated it. Then, as far as the tower of Hananel, now the Hebrew word Hanan is the word gracious, and the word El is the word for Elohim or God. And so, this tower had great significance. It was the gracious favor of God, and they sanctified this section of the wall before. Any of the rest of the wall was dedicated. Next to Elishab, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zuchar, the son of Imri, built. And the sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid the beams, they hung its doors and its bolts and bars. And next to them, Memorath, the son of Uriah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banan, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work. And again, that's the new King James The ESV has a different translation. The NIV has a different translation. The New American has a different translation. But again, I'm going to refer back to the old King James because it has a literal translation, which is a Hebraism, which I think is very important. The nobles did not put their neck to the work of their Lord. So you may be seated. So the title is is Successful Building. And we didn't read the whole chapter, and there's other things that we're going to point out that that caused the building of this wall to be a complete success. It was none other than a miraculous event that they were released to build. God intervened in all of this through raising up a king of Persia named Cyrus, who was named by Isaiah the prophet, 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. 
Cyrus then reads the scroll because Daniel the prophet is there in Persia with him. He understands that God is using him and there's a policy in the Persian Empire to give a lot of latitude to the different groups of people that they've conquered. So he releases various groups. And we've got the Cyrus Cylinder in the museum in Britain to verify that in 538, in fact, this decree is a historical event. The Jews went back with Zerubbabel. And immediately the temple work was put to cease. And the reason was they feared if they allowed this temple to be built that this people would get their independence and revolt. And so it was stopped. God sends a couple of prophets in in our Bible that corresponds to that time period. Haggai and Zechariah who prophesied in 520 B.C. So 536 they come back. 586, the temple was destroyed. 516, this temple is finished. It's rebuilt. 70 years. The city walls are still in rubbish, rubble. The the reputation, the disgrace, the shame that the Israelites felt over their homeland. To us, we, we can't fathom that kind of history for a nation. We're, we're barely over 200 years. And we're so fractionated, so divided. But here we have a people who are called out by God, who are unique, who have a special mission to the world. And Nehemiah senses that mission and he senses that burden that Mount Zion is to be the drawing place for all people to come and to experience the Messiah, to experience salvation, to experience a kingdom where peace reigns. And so he's broken over the news, and the first thing Nehemiah does is he prays. And this is where vision always starts. It starts on our knees, and he prays, and then he plans that was chapter 2. He goes and views the walls. He looks at what needs to be done. He incorporates just a few men to go with him. Then he gives encouragement. He tells them all the things that God is doing. And the people get involved. And then the third P, pray, plan, and then practice. I think in my spiritual life, that is where I fall down most often. I can pray. And I can see what needs to be done, and I can plan. But boy, putting it into practice. And sometimes I'll put it into practice, and it lasts about two weeks, and it fizzles out. I got a phone call. It broke my heart because I had given a young man promised that I was going to be there and to intervene in his life. And we had this great prayer and we had this great plan. But it broke down in the practice. That's where it takes self-discipline and say, I am going to do this thing that God has put on my heart. It's not just going to be this vision, this airy thing in my head and this noble plan that I've prayed about. I am going to put it into practice. That's 
the old expression, the rubber meets the road. The Bible has got to become shoe leather, right? It's got to be lived out. And these people in chapter 3 did that. So we're talking about success. And teenagers, if you've got your little paper there, I want you to, to think about what success means. How would you define success? So how would we define success? Any of you teens, how would you define success? I don't have my glasses on, but I think Alex is thinking. <laughs> One second. Okay. I put you on the spot. Any of the other teens? Well, you know, Alex, I was having trouble this week, too, so I Googled it. <laughs> Success. And here's the, de the definition. Accomplishing an aim or a purpose. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's Success. But does the Bible define success different than that? It does and it doesn't. Because our aims and our purposes have nothing to do with this world. Our aim and our purpose is to bring honor and glory to God. And our aim and our purpose is to be faithful, period. To be faithful. That's what God wants of you. That's what God wants of me. If I pray and I plan and I practice, God wants me to be faithful. Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, brethren, it is required, not an option, that stewards be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. That's success. Joshua defines success like this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Why? That you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou be prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. By doing all that is written in the book of the law, Joshua that's wherein success lies. Jeremiah was far from successful by our standards. Had no megachurch, had no conversions, other than maybe his servant Baruch, who came and got him out of the cistern of muck and pulled him out. No king listened to him, no noble listened to him. The other prophets mocked him, made fun of him. And his people never repented, and they ended up going into captivity. But Jeremiah was a success. Jeremiah was told this, Gird up your loins, get ready for a fight, Jeremiah. Arise, speak unto all that I command thee. Do not be as dismayed at their faces, don't be confounded before them. For behold, behold I have made you this day a defense city, an iron pillar, a brazen wall <coughs> against the whole land against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, against all the people thereof of the land. They will fight, and they will be against you. But you know that they will not prevail, for I am with you, saith the Lord, to deliver you. Now that was his calling, and he was faithful to that. For North Valley Bible Church to be successful, there are several things that we can glean out of this chapter 
that we can apply not only to the church, but we can apply it to our personal lives. One of the things that we see here in this chapter, as we read those first five verses, what phrase kept being repeated? I'll get you involved in a little bit. What was the phrase? Next to them, and next to them, and next to them. Okay, we got it? That was said over and over and over again. There's division of labor. It wasn't just one group. There was this group, and then next to them, another group, another group next to them. So one of the key ingredients for us to be successful at North Valley Bible Church is a division of labor. And you can take that to your home, a division of labor. Dad, do you know what your role is? Mom, do you know what your role is? And are you doing that? Children, do you know what your position and your role is in the, within the family? Division of labor. So that's the first principle that we're going to look at. The second principle is this humility of service, a willingness to submit, a willingness to be used. A third principle, and we didn't read the verse, and we'll get to it, and that is whatever work God has called you to do, it is sacred work. I don't care what your vocation is today. God does not call anybody into secular vocation. If you're a builder, if you're a police officer, if you're a computer tech, if you're a welder, if you work out at Air Force Base, if you help set up a concert downtown, if you work on a car, it is sacred work because you are a follower of Jesus. So those are three principles that if we will apply them to our lives, we will be successful builders. So this, this first principle that there was no divisiveness just because people were different. So in 3.1, we see a family group. The high priest rose up with his brethren. So that's one group. In chapter 3 and verse 2, we see groups from cities. Next to them, the men of Jericho built. And then we see in verse, uh, five, verse 5, the men of Tekoa. We get, so we have different city groups that are working together. In chapter 3 and verse 8, we see tradesmen who have something in common, and they get together and they work. So let's just look at 3.8. Next to him, Uzel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the apothecaries or perfumers, ones who made ointment. So there was tradesmen. Then there were officials over different districts, and they got together, and they worked with their skills together. In 3.9, 3.12, and 3.15. Now, we're not going to read all those verses, but we'll read 3.12. And next to him was Shalom, the son of... Boy, these are great names here. I'm going to name my next grandchild this, Courtney. Haloshasha. <laughs> leader of the half district of Jerusalem. And, and, and so we've got these leaders of these different districts that are working together. And then we've got different ministry callings. And I'm just going to give you the references. In 317, we've got Levites. In 322, we've got priests. In 326, they're called Nethanims. No, not Nethanims. Nethanim. The I am in Hebrew is actually the plural. 
So when it says cherubims, that's really incorrect. It's cherubim, and that's plural, more than one cherub. That's Hebrew, anyway. Um, so <laughs> you're going to be quizzed on that, by the way. So, so we've got all these different ministry callings. So here's the application, and I'm going to be very, very brief, but I want us just to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read 12 through 22, and we're going to do it quick, and I'm not going to do an expository teaching on this passage. That's not the purpose today. The purpose of this is just to impress upon you that every one of you this morning, God has gifted you, and there is no division at North Valley Bible Church. We are one body, but we are all so different. Man, we really are. We're a cosmopolitan church. We've got so many different people from so many different places and different backgrounds, but we are one in Christ. So let's just kind of read that, and we'll make just some quick observations. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members do not but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we Jews or Gentiles, whether we're slaves or free. We've been all made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't have a need of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set members, each one of them in the body, just as he was pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So there's a lot we could say about that passage. And we could preach an entire sermon from there. But I just want to give you just a couple of things that we can observe from this. And that, looking at Nehemiah... It takes many, many different groups to make the whole work. And if you took out one of those members, if you took out the tradesmiths, if you took out the ministers, if you took out the family groups, if you took out the... There would be a hole in the wall. And the unit is only as strong as all of it is put together. And that is true of North Valley Bible Church. That's true of the home as well. Second thing that we can look at in this passage, the Holy Spirit is the one who unifies us. That's what we have in common. For by one Spirit, we've all drank into one body. And we've all been immersed. We've all been baptized into the family of Christ through the Spirit. That's what we, we all have that in common. There's nothing different. When we share our witness and our testimonies this morning, It was the Holy Spirit that brought us into Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerated us. And that's why we feel this familyness at North Valley Bible Church. Third, 
our personal giftedness is unique to you. You might be an eye, you might be an ear, you might be a foot, you might be someone who comes in and cleans a church, you might be someone who works with children, you might be somebody who, who moves something because a, a, a television needs to be put on the middle of the wall, whatever it is. But not all of us can do the same things. Fourth principle, the fact is that this differenceness, I don't even know if that's a word, <laughs> This differentiation between our giftedness is very, very necessary. If we remove one part, the entire body is incomplete. And the same was true. If one group decided not to do the work, the wall would not have been completed. The second principle, I'm going to read this verse, and I'm going to ask you, go back to Nehemiah chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you, what is it that stands out to you in this verse that is different from all the other verses in chapter 3? And you'll see it right away. Verse 5. So we've got this next to them built, next to them built, next to them built, all through the entire chapter. What is different about this verse? Next to them, the Tekoahites built and made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. What is different about that verse? From the rest of the entire chapter. Lack of unity. And who was that lack of unity with? The nobles. And what did the nobles not do? Put, put, didn't work. This is the only group that's mentioned that didn't do the work. The word noble actually means the majestic ones. When you think that you're too big for everybody else, my mom used to say that, Patrick, you're just getting too big for your britches. I don't know what that meant. Maybe. I, but that's what happens when you start to think more of yourself than you ought to. You're above other people. And it says they didn't put their neck. That's a, a Hebraic expression. And modern translators miss it when they change it to shoulders, or they didn't stoop, or they didn't support. There was a reason the Holy Spirit put the word neck, because the Hebrews used this for a specific reason. It means that you refuse submission because of your pride. These majestic ones, they were too proud to pick up rocks and to move dirt and to get dusty with everybody else. And when we think that in the local church, I don't have time. I'm going to let other people do that. We've got the same attitude. And then the, this, this has a second meaning, and it's used throughout the Old Testament. To have a stiff neck was an attitude of stubbornness. Well, I know I ought to, but by golly, I'm just not going to do it. Or so-and-so is hurting my feelings. Until they get that right, I I'm just not going to do anything. <laughs> we can have that, that, that attitude. And so what is the cure for that? So I want us to go over, again, hold your place at Nehemiah, but I want you to go this time to Romans chapter 12. All these chapters that we're looking in the New Testament have to do with gifted variations within the body of Christ. And again, Romans chapter 12 deals with that, that same topic. But this one particularly deals with the attitude of pride. Romans chapter 12, 
3 through 8. The nobles, the lofty ones, too stiff-necked, too proud, too rebellious. So Paul writes to the Christian church, and he says this, For I say, and notice this comma, the means by which Paul gives this exhortation, the Greek preposition through, tells us the means by which he gives the exhortation. Don't miss that. I say, it's through grace that's given to me. That's how Paul even does his exhortation. Paul doesn't say, I'm coming down on you because I'm an apostle. I'm coming down on you because I planted that church. I've got to get to Rome, and and I've got to exert my authority. No. He says, I say it through the grace of God. And it's not just the grace of God. It was the grace of God that was given to him. And then he speaks it to who? He speaks it to everyone. No one is exempt. There are no nobles. There are no lofty ones at North Valley Bible Church. You know what we are? We're a bunch of sinners, aren't we? That are saved by grace, that stumble, that make mistakes, that say things that we shouldn't say, think things that we shouldn't think, but we love each other, we forgive each other, and we move forward. And Paul says, I'm speaking to every one of you, and I'm speaking through the grace of God. What does he say? The word think in the Greek language comes up. Four times in this verse. We'll only see it that, not, that, not four times in English because sometimes it's a compound word. The first word is huper frano. Huper means to go beyond. And he says, I don't want you to go beyond. And it's translated in the New King James. I don't want you to think more highly than you ought to think. You must to think. And that's an infinitive completing that verb. And so it's the word for an in the infinitive form. So there it is twice, and then we find it again, and it's in a command, but let each one think soberly. And the Greek word for soberly is so phronao. It's a compound again, and it means to think seriously, to think cautiously, to estimate yourself not in a high way. That's what it means to think soberly. And so Paul's writing them, and he says, you want to cure that attitude that I'm not going to get involved? Then you need to step back and stop thinking so highly of yourself like the nobles were doing. Think soberly of who you really are. You're not any different from anybody else. We all put our britches on the same way. The the ground is level at at the foot of the cross, isn't it? There's no stair stacks. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. We're all in the same boat. So from this passage, there's some other things that we can glean. There's nothing special, but the giver of the gift, he is the one that is special. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, same principle, but all the members don't have the same function, So we, being many in one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. One of my favorite verses, I think it's in 2 Corinthians. I probably better not quote it because I'll be wrong, but it's 2 Corinthians 7, 4, or somewhere around that neighborhood. I don't know. I have to look it up. But whenever I I started to, to 
to think that I was something special, I would just go to this verse. And it says, who makes you to differ from another? Why do you have any gifts at all, in other words? Who is it that makes you to differ from another? It's God. And what do you have that you didn't receive? Not a single thing. It's all from God. Then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And that's, in essence, what he's saying here. And so the cure for this attitude is really a modest estimation of our own abilities knowing that every grace gift is exactly that, a grace gift. We didn't earn it, and we didn't deserve it. And God deals each one a measure of faith. When we use our gifts, we're to use them in the proportion. And when he uses the word proportion here in verse 7, no, it's in verse 6, if it's prophecy... Let us use it in the proportion to our faith. That applies to all the ministries that we're supposed to do. And the word for proportion, the Greek word is analogous. That means that in the same amount that God has given, that is the same way that I am to generously, joyfully, and freely use my gifts. And it comes out in the rest of this passage, doesn't it? If you're going to give, do it with generosity. If you're going to show mercy, you do it. And the Greek word is hilariously, joyfully. Let's go to our last point. We should view all the work as holy. So let's go over to chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren. They built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They hung its doors. They built it as far as the tower of of the hundred, and they consecrated it as far as the tower of God is merciful. Han Anal. A New Testament principle again. Colossians chapter 3. We're not going to turn there. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this, And whatever you do, whatever it is, they happen to be building walls. It doesn't matter. Whatever you do, do it heartily, sincerely, generously. Apollos is the word that Paul uses there. Do it sincerely, heartily, genuinely, from the heart as unto the Lord and not unto the men, for from the Lord each one will receive a reward, for you serve the Lord Jesus. That's why, as a Christian, everything you do is sacred. If you're a teenager this morning and you're being homeschooled, And you say, I don't have to turn this in. No one's looking over my shoulder. I want to tell you this morning, Kinsey. (laughs) She's the only one looking at me. The rest of the people got their heads down. (laughs) You're doing it as unto the Lord, aren't you? You give it your very best. Right, Anthony? When you go to that dojo, man, don't you slack. You're giving it to the Lord. 
You're doing it as unto Christ. Everything that we do, it gives purpose to life. I don't care what job you have. It is a special job because you're doing it for Jesus. There is no ignoble work unless you're not doing it for Christ. If you're doing it for yourself, then it's ignoble. So we ought to view everything as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. There is no separation between sacred and secular. It's all sacred. B, ultimately, we're serving Jesus. And lastly, our work will be a reflection of our Savior. Titus chapter 3, Paul exhorts slaves, bondservants there, how to work. And then he says this at the end of that paragraph. He says, because if you'll do it this way, you will adorn, you'll beautify the gospel of Christ. What is different about that guy who works for me? All he's doing is digging a ditch over there. But man, look at the way he goes at it. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. And he's actually probably singing a hymn while he's over there doing it. What's wrong with that guy? Nothing's wrong with him. He's been saved, and he's doing it for Jesus. That's the way all of us should view our work. If we'll do those three things, no division of labor, we're united. We'll come off our high horses, and we won't think too highly of ourselves, and we'll be willing to get in and do whatever we need at North Valley Bible Church. And that we'll look at whatever we're doing, whether you're straightening out a chair or whether you're stuffing an envelope or whether you're dusting or vacuuming, whatever we're doing this morning or throughout this week at this church, we're doing it for Jesus. And I trust this week, that's the way you're going to view your work and you'll make a difference where you're at. That's what it means to be a successful builder. Pretty easy, isn't it? And we all can do it. Father, Thank you this morning that you don't ask us to be anything other than what you made us. And you don't expect anything more from us than what you gifted us already to do. Therefore, you get the glory, you get the praise. But God, it still takes willing vessels who will put their necks to the work. And the only thing that's going to keep us from doing that is our pride and our stubbornness. So God, help us to crucify those things and let us at North Valley Bible Church rise up and build the ministries that need to be built here. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.